Let's jump straight into a Bible reading. Mark chapter 9, verse 30 to 37 is where we're going tonight. Actually, before I read that, just a bit of a random thing. When this first church was first purchased, so the church started 50 years ago to this very day, it officially became a Baptist church. Um, but uh, when it was first, this building was purchased in 1972. It used to be a St. John's Ambulance Training Centre. And just as this is very random, it has nothing to do with the message, but the uh, auditorium or the church, uh, that, that beam across there, that used to be the wall. And then the people sitting in the back, that, that was the various offices of the church. Um, and the wall there, the only heating source for the church was a big open log fire. That was the heating source for the church. So if people got here early on a night like tonight, they'd make sure they sat near the fire. And just during the sermon, if people got a bit cold, they might get up and put a log on the fire. And there you go. I think that's really interesting. <laughs> I was just like, why are you telling us this? Okay, let's go. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum where... Uh, when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be the first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Let me start with a story. To set the scene, we're in Richmond, Virginia, in the United States of America, in the early 1800s. And one morning, on a Saturday morning, an old man went into a market to buy something, to buy a turkey, in fact. He was dressed plainly. His coat and his hat were both worn and ordinary. On his arm, he carried a small basket. He said, I would like to get a turkey for tomorrow night's dinner. The, um, the man in the shop showed him a, a turkey and was all looking good and it was plump and white. And the man said, yep, that's fantastic, just what I want. The old fellow asked the price and paid for it. The market man wrapped a paper around it and put it in the basket. The old man was about to begin his journey home um, when another man walked into the shop, a young man, and he said, I'll take one of those turkeys too. The young man was dressed in fine style. He had a top hat, he had a cape, and he carried a fancy cane. Shall I wrap it up for you, asked the market man. The young man replied, yes, here is your money and send it to my house at once. Uh, Sorry, I can't do that, said the market man. My errand boy is sick today and there's no one else to send it. Besides, it's not our custom to deliver goods. Then how am I meant to get it home, asked the younger man. I suppose you'll have to carry it yourself, said the market man. It's not heavy. The young man now flustered, carry it myself. Who do you think I am? 
fancy me walking along the street carrying a turkey. And he began to grow angry. The old man who had bought the first turkey was still standing nearby. He had heard all that had happened and he said to the younger man, excuse me, sir, uh, but may I ask where you live? Uh, I live at number 39 Broad Street. My name is Johnson, said the younger man. Well, that's lucky, said the old man. I happen to be going that way. I'll carry your turkey if you'll allow me. Certainly, said Mr. Johnson. Here it is. You may follow me. When they reached Mr. Johnson's house, the old man politely handed him the turkey and uh, was about to leave. My friend, what shall I pay you, said the younger gentleman. Oh, nothing, sir, said the old man. It was no trouble. You're welcome. The old man bowed and went on his way. Young Mr. Johnson looked after him and wondered. A few days later, the younger man went back to the market. He found the market man who had sold him the turkey. Who was that polite old gentleman who carried the turkey for me? He asked the market man. That was John Marshall, Chief Justice of the United States of America. He's one of the greatest men in the country. The young gentleman was surprised and ashamed. Well, why did he offer to carry my turkey? He asked. The market man responded, he probably wished to teach you a lesson. What sort of lesson? Maybe that no man should feel himself too fine to carry his own packages. Just then another man who had been in the market that day and had seen and heard it all said simply to the young gentleman, Judge Marshall had no lesson in mind. He carried the turkey for you simply because he wished to be kind and obliging. That is his way. This morning, this morning, this evening, I want to bring you a message about humility and greatness, about servanthood and greatness. Last month, it's passed us by now, we forgot that it was even meant to happen probably, but last month was meant to be the Tokyo Olympics, 2020 Olympics. Thousands and thousands of athletes had been preparing for four years training every day so that they could perform at their peak and be faster and higher, stronger, and so that they could achieve greatness. Uh, in about a week's time, delayed by two months, the Tour de France will start. And uh, men will ride bikes across mountain passes in France and push themselves in the limit so they can wear a yellow jersey and achieve greatness. Earlier today, the Adelaide Crows took to the field, <laughs> and everyone laughs, uh, with a desire to achieve some level of competency, <laughs> and didn't quite happen. What is the nature of true greatness? Is it okay to pursue greatness? Is it good to desire to be your best? Is success okay? Is wealth okay? Is achievement okay? Where does greatness fit with the Christian life? You see, a lot of you guys are starting out in life. No, you're not starting out in life, but you're starting out, still relatively speaking, in adult life. A lot of you are still studying. A lot of you are still kind of working out your direction. But I can tell you that, it, that in time, some of you are going to start to achieve significant things. You're going to achieve recognition, you're going to achieve financial reward, you're going to achieve levels of power and influence in this world. And the question is, what will you do with that? How will you carry that? How is your faith going to impact the way you deal with that? 
This passage from Mark's Gospel is quite a seemingly insignificant passage when compared with those that are surrounding it. Um, Last week, I'm pretty sure, Nick got to preach on the passage, Who do you say I am? Right? That passage is incredibly important. Jesus uh, says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? They say, some say you're a prophet, some say you're kind of an Elijah figure. And then he says, but who do you say that I am? It's a passage of incredible centrality, who we say Jesus is. A couple of weeks ago, I got to preach on the loaves and the fishes. Jesus doing this incredible miracle. And in the midst of those great passages, this little passage where Jesus asked this simple question, uh, what were you arguing about on the road? Seems fairly insignificant, but I actually believe it's a message of something that's so important to our lives. And really, uh, I'm going to give you the, the answer to the message. I'm going to give you the, the sermon passage, what, exactly what I'm going to say in about 10 words or so. And it's this. If you want to be first, learn to be last. If you want to be great, learn to serve. That's what this message message is saying. If you want to be first, learn to be last. If you want to be great, learn to serve. What does that mean? The disciples um, who are following Jesus accepted his call when he said, come follow me, about three years prior to this passage. Because this passage, even though it's in Mark 9, is uh, the time in Mark's gospel where it transitions from his, his ministry in Galilee And he begins this journey towards Jerusalem, which will be where he is, of course, uh, betrayed and arrested and goes to the cross. And so he's just had this incredible event in chapter 9 called the Transfiguration, where he went up with three of his disciples onto this tall mountain and he was transfigured and they got to see his glory. They sort of got to see that Jesus is fully God and, and fully man, but a lot of his divinity in a way has been hidden and not visible. But on the mountaintop, they saw his glory. And it's generally understood that was right in the north of Israel, uh, the highest mountain in Israel, which is called uh, Mount Hermon. It's for your reference, Nick, the tallest mountain in Israel. <laughs> it's just come up the last three sermons now. Um, and then they've journeyed down and they're going through Galilee. And if you follow the, the, um, the narrative of Mark, they begin this journey toward Jerusalem. And so the disciples chose to follow Jesus. And for three years, they've seen his greatness. And Jesus has spoken about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. And they've come to understand that Jesus is some sort of king and they've got an expectation that he's going to come into his kingdom and he will be a ruler. And probably when he reaches Jerusalem, this event will happen. He's going to be the king and they are his closest followers. But now Jesus is talking about something else is going to happen, that he is going to be betrayed, rejected, and that he's going to die. And they can't get their heads around it. First time Jesus teaches them, Peter says, he rebukes Jesus. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. This time, it says that they uh, can't understand it, but they're too afraid to ask him. And as they're walking along the road, Jesus perhaps walks ahead of them, and they're given space to, to talk without Jesus being beside them. And they start to talk, but they don't start to wrestle with this issue of kingdom and greatness and in terms of his, what Jesus has been saying about his death. They begin to wrestle with the question about who amongst them will be the greatest. When Jesus comes into his kingdom, who's going to have the second in charge position and the third in charge? And what's the order of things? And we don't have what it says in the scripture because it doesn't go into it. But you could kind of imagine the, uh, the argument that happened. 
I imagine Peter would have spoken first. If you know Peter, he liked to speak up first. He might have said, hey, I've been, Jesus has been saying stuff about me, making promises to me. I'm pretty much the second in charge. I will be the greatest. And then James and John said, hold on, when we went up the mountain, we got to go up with you. And so it'll be, it'll be the three of us together, or maybe it'll be us. And maybe Judas said, well, I'm like the treasurer. I look after the money in this operation. Clearly, I'm important. And they began to argue who was the greatest. Others state their claim about greatness. And then Jesus, when they reached the house and they settled down, asked them this question. Hey, guys, what was it that you were arguing about on the road? And suddenly they're silent because they realize that what they were talking about, the way they were arguing, was the opposite of everything Jesus had been teaching them. And we kind of think, to, we think, man, you know, how could they have done that after being with Jesus all that time? Why are they behaving like this? And it's easy to, to look down on them and say, you know, I don't get into conversation with, with my mates about how, who's the greatest among us. Um, I'm sure most of you don't do that. And yet, the very culture that we live in, the very culture of our Western society is a culture driven by achievement and success and striving. It's a culture in which we often value achievement over relationships, success over substance. We value busyness and business. There's always a, a target to achieve, a task to hit, a competency to prove, and we shape our lives and our diary around those things. We also have this thing where we, we just love celebrity. We're drawn to celebrity. And there's even this thing now called like uh, Instagram famous people who are famous without actually ever having done anything to become famous. And um, we're just drawn to celebrity. I don't know if you've ever been somewhere with a celebrity in your midst and you see someone, you're like, you whisper to your friends, look over there, there's, you know, there's Pastor Mark. No. <laughs> That's so wrong. Um, you know, you, you, people love to get the, you know, the selfie with the famous person. We love our sporting heroes in this country. We, we love greatness. We love to look up to, to achievement. We have this saying, you know, this person is the goat. This person is the goat, the greatest of all time. We argue about who's the greatest of all time. But where does this lead us? Um, theologian um, Henri Nguyen, I don't know if I'm saying his name correctly, got a few quotes from him. Uh, he says this. He says, beneath all the great accomplishments of our time, there is a deep current of despair. While efficiency and control are the greatest aspirations of our society, the loneliness, isolation, lack of friendship and intimacy, broken relationships, boredom, feelings of emptiness and depression, and a deep sense of uselessness fill the hearts of millions of people in our success-oriented world. Jesus calls them out. What were you arguing about on the road? Why do you want to be great. I think most of us, or some of us, or perhaps, you know, I'll say, I said this this morning, this is a generalization, but I think it's particularly true of blokes. It may be true of lots of women as well, but I, I know it's particularly true of a lot of blokes. There is something in us that desires to achieve, not always for the right reasons. There's something in us that desires to achieve so that we can have some kind of recognition that we can have some kind of position, that we can have some kind of influence, that we can sort of prove ourselves. 
I'm sure that's not just guys. And, uh, and Jesus comes up with, with advice that I would say non-Christians, if you're here, you might just laugh at this. And even if you're, if you're Christians, you might look at this and say, does this make any sense? Jesus says, if you want to be great, um, if you want to be great, you must be the least of all. If you want to be great, you must be the servant of all. If you want to be first, you should be the very last. Does that make any sense whatsoever? It does. Let's explore this. Let's start with Jesus, if we're going to understand this. Paul in Philippians 2 says this, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, who had it all, came into this world and lowered himself and made himself nothing and went to a cross, the ultimate shame and humiliation for our sake. But in that suffering, the suffering servant actually showed his greatness. And then God the Father was the one that then came and lifted him up. Jesus made himself low and the Father came and lifted him up. Jesus is in the room with the child. He, he, says, to the, he says to them, um, whoever welcomes one of these little children into my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Jesus is saying something about how we must carry ourselves and how we must treat those who are considered the least. Because in Jesus' time, uh, the least were, were actually children. These days, children are almost revered in a way that they weren't. And uh, as a parent, I feel like I'm kind of like the servant to my child a lot of the time. But in Jesus' time, it was very much the other way. There was this hierarchy of people in society and children were actually at the bottom. Um, but Jesus says, no, no, those who are at the bottom need to be treated like they're at the top. You must actually switch, uh, swip, switch the flip, flip the switch, <laughs> I don't know. swap them over and actually say, no, I'm going to choose to be humble and I'm going to choose to honour those who are at the lowest. Some people have described Jesus' kingdom as the upside down kingdom. I was hear, hearing a guy speak, an American guy who lives in a community, like, a bit like an Amish community, but he was talking about his community and the way they live this week. It was a really interesting interview. And he said that he practices and believes all Christians should read the Beatitudes every day. The Beatitudes are the passage in Scripture where Jesus says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the... Um, those kind of passages because that ex explains Jesus' upside-down kingdom. In Jesus' kingdom, those who are weak are actually strong. Those who are, um, want to be the greatest must become the servant of all. Those who recognize that they're poor in spirit are actually blessed. Those who are meek will inherit the earth. Those who are persecuted can count themselves blessed. Those who want to be great learn to become servants. And Jesus models this over and over and over again. Jesus has power and authority but he shows grace and humility and acceptance to the lowest and to the least, and so should we. 
But let's come back to the question. Is achievement bad? Is success bad? Is recognition bad? Is uh, taking positions of leadership and authority and influence and power bad? Well, the answer is it depends. It depends why you take them. It actually comes back to the heart, what's going on in the heart. Imagine this, a great surgeon, uh, a man or woman who is a great surgeon, and uh, the best surgeon in, in their field in the whole of Australia. People come from around Australia uh, to be operated on by uh, this lady. And, um, and she's a brilliant surgeon. And um, the question is, um, and she has incredible recognition from her peers and from people. And she's obviously gaining great material benefit uh, in terms of financial benefit from her career. Is that good or is it bad? Well, it depends on her heart. Is she doing that career? Because deep down she's driven by a deep insecurity and she's constantly trying to prove how good she is. And all of this study and all of this work is driven by this desire to sort of prove themselves. Or are they, are they wanting the accolades? Are they wanting the material success so they can live well and, and strut around and be this successful person? It's possible that's why they've become the great surgeon. But alternatively, this lady might have become the great surgeon because she wants to serve people. Because she knows she's been given an intelligence and she's been given a skill set which enables her to go far in her profession so that she can impact the lives of thousands of people and literally save lives and change lives. Comes back to the heart. You can put in there almost any career. The teacher who works their way up and becomes a school principal the person in business, and also the pastor. Why are we doing what we do as pastors? Why are we doing what we do as ministry leaders? In anything where we gain recognition, what is the heart that sits behind what we do? The question is, whose kingdom are you building? And who do you want to be recognized as the king? Jesus taught his disciples to pray, and he said, when you pray, pray this, our Father in heaven, holy be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We often finish that prayer by saying, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. It puts ourselves under, it reminds ourselves that, that God is the king, holy is your name, your kingdom come. Whose kingdom are we building? I mentioned a quote before by a guy called uh, Henri Nguyen. And uh, Henri Nguyen was a theologian, he was a writer, and he was a, an academic, a scholar. He was a brilliant man. He was uh, recognized as one of the greatest theologians of his age. He became a, uh, a university lecturer at Notre Dame University in America, then at Yale, uh, Ivy League, top universities. He became a professor of divinity at Harvard Divin School of Divinity. Professor of Divinity. He's worldwide recognized. He's famous. He's brilliant. He's a great thinker. He's a great communicator, a great writer. And then he feels the call of God on his life to leave that completely and to enter into a community where he will live amongst and serve people who are being born with uh, highly disabled. And he leaves it behind and he enters a community and starts living amongst and serving people with disabilities. And the people in the community 
don't care less about any of the books that he's written. Do you know why? Because they can't read. And they don't care about his stint at Yale because they really don't know what Yale is and they don't care. And suddenly he found that all of the stuff, all of the identity, all of the stuff that he had these attachments to, he realized how much of his identity was caught up in his credentials and his career and his success. And he had it all stripped away and he's living amongst people where all they care about is, is this man kind to me? Is he gracious? Is he compassionate? Is he loving? Is he genuine? Because the one thing they could pick very quickly is if he was genuine or if he was a fake. He said this out of his experience. He said, living in community with very wounded people, I came to see that I'd lived most of my life as a tightrope artist, trying to walk on a high, thin cable from one tower to the other, always waiting for the applause when I had not fallen off and broken my leg. Do you get that? It's not a good way to live, to live like that. And uh, he went on to say this, the great message, this sort of came out of his experience, the great message we have to carry as ministers of God's word and followers of Jesus is that God loves us not because of what we do or accomplish, but because God created and redeemed us in love and chose us to proclaim that love as the true source of all human life. It's a wonderful thing. It's a freedom. It frees you up for the rest of your life when you can let go of those things, those attachments that we, we allow this world so, so quickly want to attach to us and actually walk a path where we say, I am loved by God, not because of what I do or achieve. I am created by God. I've been redeemed by Him in love. And therefore, I can actually walk in the freedom of that into whatever God opens up for me and wherever He leads me. So how do we practice humility and how do we grow in humility? Well, C.S. Lewis said this, As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. So we've got to look up. This is how we grow in humility. We look up. We look to God. We look to the gospel and we look to the cross. The gospel has this wonderful thing of both bringing us down and then lifting us up. When we come before the cross, it brings us down because we realize I am just a, a broken sinner in need of God's grace. There is nothing I can do to save myself. Nothing I can do to say, God, look at all my achievements and accomplishments and how good I am. I am a sinner and I come before God uh, cap in hand saying, God, I need you. It brings us down. But then the gospel also lifts us up. From that position of humility, God says, you are a child of God. I made you and I loved you, and I've given my life for you, and you are now um, made new and in relationship with me. And in the gospel, and in that, in, that, in that exchange, and in that recognition of who we are and of what God has done for us, and then who we are in Christ, we find our true identity. We find all we need to know. And then we can actually move forward, and indeed we can cope then with, with uh, both the when things don't go to plan and we end up feeling like we've got no place and we can actually cope with success as well. We, you know, both success and failure we can actually live with because we know who we are and we know whose we are. William Sloan, oh, actually I'll, I'll say this as well. Um, 
another, I want to renew on quote, I'm going to do a roll here. He says this, he says, the long painful history of the church is the history of people ever and again tempted to choose power over love, control over the cross, and being a leader over being led. And it's interesting that the church, which kind of a generation ago occupied this place of kind of of being this powerful institution and sort of took this place in society of kind of like um, authority and respect and dignity and honour in society, in that somehow lost its, its mission and its message and now finds itself pushed to the edges where it's almost mocked and humiliated and has a place not of dignity and honour and respect. But interestingly, I think it's from that position that the gospel message has a power to shine all the more. Just like Jesus. Amen. Rick, uh, Rick Warren said this, True humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. I'm going to quote... Um, Mother Teresa, I'm not, not prone to quoting her often, but she said this, um, she said this, these are a few ways we can practice humility. To speak as little as possible of oneself. To mind one's own business. Not to want to manage other people's affairs. To accept contradictions and correction cheerfully. To pass over the mistakes of others. To accept insults and injuries. To accept being slighted, forgotten and disliked. To be kind and gentle, even under provocation. Never to stand on one's dignity. To always choose the hardest. And I reckon that's pretty good. I'm going to copy that out and put that above my desk, along with some other great quotes. Let me finish with Jeremiah chapter 9, if the band want to come up. Jeremiah chapter, chapter 9, verse 23 to 24 says this. This is what the Lord says. Do not let the wise boast in their wisdom, or the powerful boast in their power, or the rich boast in their riches. But those who wish to boast should boast in this alone. They should boast that they know me and understand that I am the Lord, who demonstrates unfailing love and who brings justice and righteousness to the earth, and that I delight in these things, I, the Lord, have spoken. I did a little paraphrase of that, the MSV, Mark Sanders' version, and I, I put it like this. This is a paraphrase. If you're wise... <laughs> it's good timing. If you're wise, don't brag about how wise you are, how much you know how smart you are, how well you can engage in arguments and discussions of all manner. And if you're powerful, don't brag about your power and your influence. Don't think yourself superior than any person. Remember, Jesus had more power than you will ever have, but he chose to be selfless and to model to us selfless servant leadership. If you're rich, don't brag, brag about being rich, how rich and successful you are. In fact, don't brag at all. And don't even let the seed of pride grow in your heart about any of these things which can lead to arrogance and an attitude of superiority. If you really want to boast in something, if you need to tell others about something about yourself, then let them know this, that because of God's great mercy, despite all your flaws and imperfections, that you have come to know God's unconditional love 
and his amazing grace. That you have come to know the God who brings justice and righteousness to the people of this world. What does greatness look like? How do you be great? If you want to be first, become the very last. If you want to become great, learn to serve. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.